Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Tyler Strand, co-founder and CTO of AIR, a creative operations platform that's raised $28 million in funding. Tyler, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. Not a problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Absolutely, yeah. So as, as you mentioned, my name's Tyler. I'm the CTO and co-founder of a company called AIR. We are a creative operations platform based out of New York City, but working mostly remote these days. So it's a, it's a B2B SaaS business. And uh, before that, I've been sort of in the early stage, you know, startup space my whole career. Grew up in New York, went out to Stanford for college and studied computer science, and have been sort of building products at the intersection of, you know, creativity and technology for the past decade or so. I saw on LinkedIn that you founded a company in 2013. Tell us about that. It was Hostess.fm. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I founded it with a few friends while I was in college. And the, the premise of that business was essentially live streaming for electronic music. So we started it back in the kind of early days of live streaming a little bit before YouTube and Facebook and Twitter all embedded that into their their platforms. And it was a ton of fun. I was about 20 when I started the business and, you know, was running around meeting DJs and trying to convince them to broadcast their sets live from nightclubs or music festivals or wherever they were playing. The premise being that, you know, a lot of that music is created live in real time and often doesn't get recorded. And, you know, so we wanted to kind of extend the uh, the magic of what was happening in front of the audience to, to folks who wanted to listen at home. And are you big into music? Do you play any instruments? Do you DJ? I, I see a, a trend here looking through that company and then the, the next company that you do in Beatport. So where does that come from for you? Yeah, I, I grew up around music. I played a bunch of instruments as a kid. I was the president of my high school orchestra, I played the violin, studied piano. And uh, yeah, that kind of, you know, translated into electronic music as I got a little bit older. And, you know, after starting Hostess, we wound up selling the business to a, a music production company um, here in New York that used to produce some of the biggest EDM festivals in the world. So yeah, really, really love the music industry. I don't work in it anymore, but, um, you know, definitely still has a place in, in my heart for sure. After that exit, was it hard going from being a founder to working at a company? Good question. You know, the structure of the acquisition was such where I really had a lot of sort of independence and autonomy, even uh, at the acquirer. So my job was sort of still the same thing, which was to build a product from the ground up to live stream electronic music and the business that bought us didn't have an existing tool that did that. So I was actually given, I think, a lot of room and sort of uh, space to go and hire a team and, and, you know, still build that product, but just with the support of a bigger business with bigger brand and existing, you know, artist relationships and existing festivals. So I was really grateful for the outcome, especially as a 22 year old, um, it, was a, it was an awesome first job out of college to be you know, at the helm of, you know, still an early stage product, but given, given the space to go and try to build something with the resources of a bigger company. Makes sense. A few other questions that we like to ask, and the goal here yeah. is really to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? 
there's so many incredible founders in our space. I feel like uh, people come from all different backgrounds and they, you know, apply their, their energy and their grit to lots of interesting ideas. But one that always sticks out to me a, a sort of founding story is that of, of Notion. You know, I've read a lot of Ivan Zhao's early writing from, you know, the first couple of years of starting that business. And I'm always impressed by just the, the sheer sort of force of will and determination that it sounds like it took in the first really two, three, four years of that business. You know, he tells stories about, you know, building this thing himself with a, a couple of friends, you know, spending late nights and weekends and moving into like a tiny one bedroom apartment to kind of keep bootstrapping the business and just, you know, just as persistence that I think most people would not have fought through. And then to see it, you know, emerge the other side. And, you know, now today, one of the most game-changing businesses in enterprise software is, is just a great, a great story. And I think a lot of it is owed to his persistence. I think it's very hard in enterprise software to get people to use the word love when they describe your product, but people really love Notion, which I think they is really do. fascinating. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's not easy to pull that off. No, no, not at all. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, it's a, I think it's a trend that I would argue maybe Slack started, you know, sort of this consumerization of enterprise tech, you know, the idea that you could build products or software that were as easy to use and even fun to use as some of the apps that were, were popping up in the consumer world. But, you know, we spend eight, 10 hours a day in front of our computers at work these days. So, you know, it's just a huge, I think it has a huge impact to be shipping enterprise software that people actually enjoy using. Yep. hundred percent. What about books and the way we like to frame this, and we got this from Ryan Holiday, uh, he calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really <laughs> how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind for you? Yeah, I think honestly, I'm not, I'm not the most voracious reader as an adult. I, I spend more time listening to podcasts and reading like articles and stuff online. But as a kid, one of the books that I read that always stuck with me was, well, Ayn Rand wrote two great books, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. I loved both of them. And uh, it's kind of funny because, you know, they come with a lot of kind of baggage. There's a lot of political statements in them that I actually don't agree with. But one of the core premises of the books was basically that one of the best things you can do for the world is to be really good at something and then do that to the best of your ability. You know, the protagonists in her books are complicated characters, but they're really passionate. You know, in The Fountainhead, the protagonist is an architect and in Atlas Shrugged, the, uh, sort of an inventor or an industrialist. And the positive impact that they have on the world is all through sort of their craft. And I think that I definitely still think about that a lot and have applied it to my career. I think I am definitely guided by wanting to be really good at what I do, wanting to, you know, care about my job and care about the work product that I produce. And I think a lot of that can be traced back to those books. What is your craft? Is it company building? Is it product building something more specific? I think at this point, I would say company building, you know, maybe earlier in my career, I might've said product or team building, but I think at, at this point I've worn so many different hats, you know, especially in the last six, seven years now building air early days, it was definitely focused on, on product, but you know, as the business grew, the needs changed, you know, and we're fortunate now to actually have a lot of great people on the team who day to day, are, I, I think doing way more product building than I am. And so my energy really has shifted into what I think more of as company building, you know, thinking about yes, the product, but also the people and also the market and the marketing and sales motion and the pricing and, you know, the nature of, I think company building is sort of filling gaps, you know, figuring out where the most burning fire is that day and figuring out how to put it out. And I think that's kind of what I've fallen in love with doing. 
You mentioned podcasts there as well. So of course, apart from category visionaries, what's on your playlist? What else are you listening to these days? Well, honestly, I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts. Actually, I really love a podcast called Smartless with Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and Sean Hayes. It has nothing to do with work, but it's a totally great way to unplug after a long day and just, you know, listen to a bit of of nonsense, but also you know learn a little bit. And then in the you know in the work or startup or product space, I love the work that Lenny Richitsky does from Airbnb. Both his his newsletter and his podcast and his Slack community, I find them all to be really kind of honest and tactical and just sort of great resources day to day as you're thinking through a problem. There's almost nothing that he hasn't touched on at this point. So I'm a big fan of his work. Yeah, he's so good. And that keyword there, tactical, it's the most tactical podcast I've ever listened to. Yeah, so good. Totally. He's also just a beast. The videos he creates or the little snippets that I see shared on social media. He's so good at that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like he's really mastered the art of figuring out how to just make these little bite-sized nuggets that you could actually take something away from, which is great because there's so much, you know, thought leadership and, you know, high level sort of fluff on the internet, especially in our world. And, and it's, it's cool to see somebody like him go the total opposite direction and just provide useful things that founders or employees can deploy, you know, the next day at work. Yep. Absolutely. Let's switch gears here now and let's dive a bit deeper into air. So to start us off, could you just talk us through the problem that you're solving? Yeah, I mean, the problem that we solve is is essentially that creative teams, they waste a lot of time in their day managing the assets that they produce. So, you know, if you think about a modern business today, even ones that are not necessarily, you know, traditionally creatively inclined, they produce just a ton of stuff, images, videos, or whatever it might be to reach their customers, to tell their stories, to build their brands, to advertise their products. And over the last five or 10 years, the sheer volume of that content has grown exponentially. Even your your local restaurant, you know, probably has a, a strong Instagram presence and a newsletter and, you know, maybe they're opening another location. And, you know, so they, they quickly amass, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, whatever images that need to be worked with. And so that's kind of what we help companies do. You know, at the most basic level, it's keeping them all in one place, much like a storage provider like Dropbox or Google Drive would do. But we focus a lot on the, the sort of work that happens on top of that library. So how do you find what you're looking for? How do you make edits, um, share content with different members of your team, either internal or external, make changes, you know, publish content onto the internet, all of the stuff that goes into the creative process. We try to, you know, streamline and make more efficient. And take us back to the early days founding the company. What was it about this specific problem that made you say, yep, that's it. Let's build a company around this. You know, I, I would, I wish it were that clean. Yeah, I think like most startups, we didn't have such a crisp understanding or articulation when we started of what the problem was or who the customer was. You know, we had like a general hunch that there was, that there was something to be done in this space. You know, Shane, my co-founder and I were both experiencing this pain point firsthand. You know, we were working in, you know, media oriented businesses with large content libraries and seeing some of the the struggles there day to day. And also in our personal lives, you know, we were, you know, graduating college and starting to think about how to stay in touch with friends and, you know, maintaining our own social media accounts and just finding the the day-to-day trials and tribulations of working with the personal media library ever more challenging. So we knew there was something there that times were changing, content creation was exploding, the tools weren't moving that quickly. But honestly, it took us about two, maybe even three years before we really narrowed in on the exact couple of pain points and the right target customer. And 
you know, once we did that, we started to see, you know, the growth of the business that we're still sort of riding today. Who's that ideal customer for you? And today we sell mostly to creative directors at, you know, small to mid-sized businesses. So, you know, great businesses that we love to work with are direct-to-consumer brands that are, you know, super brand forward. They've got, you know, marketing or creative or social or sales teams that are working with tons of images and videos. And, and typically there's some sort of creative director or marketing manager at the helm of that work. And that's sort of our ideal customer profile. So, you know, those are the folks that we spend a lot of time uh, talking to and working with and, and, you know, trying to improve the product for day to day. Would a simple way to summarize the product be like Dropbox meets Figma? Yeah, that's not bad. I mean, I, I often use Dropbox meets something when I'm looking for the, the kind of quick uh, elevator pitch, especially for folks, you know, who are not familiar with the business. I think Dropbox meets Pinterest is maybe a, a little bit more accurate in that, you know, we definitely do a lot of the underlying storage search organization of a Dropbox or a Google Drive, but the product is just super visually oriented, much like browsing through a Pinterest board. Most of the actual design work is still happening off platforms. That's not work that you do on air. It's work that you do in Figma or Photoshop or Canva or on your desktop, wherever you do your best work. And then we're sort of the the way station, the connective tissue that pulls that content into one place and lets you kind of collaborate and get feedback and work on it. But the the designers are typically, you know, living in other tools that we connect with. So on our end, you know, we're a podcast agency. We produce about 500 episodes per month. There's, mm -hmm. I don't know, four or five little video clips for each of those. So, you know, we're, we're in like the thousands of pieces of content and that's yeah. just more like video and, and audio files. So for us, we use Drive it's easy-ish to use. It's, you know, free or whatever, you know, small amount that that Google Drive charges for Gmail charges. You yeah. know, what's like the, how do you convince someone like me? Because I'm guessing that's where a lot of your customers are is, you know, they're using something and I wouldn't say I love Drive, but it works <laughs> good enough. Like, what do you yeah. say or what do you do to like aggravate that pain to make them want to switch and make that change? Yeah, there's sort of a tipping point, I think, that businesses hit as they grow either in in headcount or in the size of the content library, you know, and, and typically we see it start to hit around maybe 10 or so team members who are all collaborating on a, on a creative library together or five or 10,000 assets. And especially if that stuff is visual image and video, folks get frustrated with those tools and the ability to search, the ability to leave good feedback, the ability to you know, make quick edits, manage multiple versions, and also to share and present publicly in a way that feels professional and representative of your work. You know, I think people really cringe a little bit when they have to send their their beautiful imagery out in kind of a dry Dropbox link that, you know, somebody struggles to open or find what they're looking for, and it just doesn't put the the work, you know, in the best light. And um, so that that's one of the things that customers always love about our product is just how you know, dropping a few photos in and sending a link out is easy, but it also feels really clean and professional in a way that does the content justice that I think, you know, some of the cloud storage providers don't do. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. What was it like landing your first paying customers? What was that process like? And the reason I ask is obviously every startup struggles with this in the early days of how do you mm -hmm. give you money when, when you're a startup? So how'd you pull it off? 
Yeah. Our first couple paying customers were very kind of hand to hand. We were working on this idea. We had a kind of a crude version of the product built out and we found a handful of customers really just sort of by happenstance who had, who were feeling this pain so acutely that they were willing to look the other way on a lot of, you know, the things that didn't make a lot of sense about our business. You know, we were so early stage, the product wasn't fully built out. We were missing a lot of the features that some of the competition closest competitors had, but the pain that they were feeling was so acute that they were willing to take a leap of faith and, and try us out. And we did a lot of work helping them get started, moving their content in ourselves. You know, early days, I can remember we landed a nonprofit institution out of New York here who had sort of an archive of like 50 years of video footage that they had recorded at events and, you know, different uh, functions that they had done. And it, you know, the whole thing was like 50 terabytes of content and they had no way of viewing it. It was all sitting on hard drives and USB sticks and different people's Dropbox and Google Drive's accounts. It wasn't centralized in any way. And they felt like there was this big opportunity that they were sitting on and they couldn't they couldn't work with it. They couldn't, couldn't do anything. So I actually went to their office physically, met them, you know, put a face to the name, made them feel comfortable that we were going to be able to take care of them and, and manage their stuff. And then I personally uploaded these 50 terabytes of, of footage to our product, you know, by like splitting it up into multiple drives and getting different laptops and setting them up at friends' apartments. And, you know, we made it all seem like it was magic and happening overnight, but there was a total mess behind the scenes just to get to a place where we could send them a link and say, here you go. Here's that 50 years of footage lit up, searchable, browsable, shareable. And, you know, that was sort of the, the magic moment for them that they, they hadn't been able to achieve. And, you know, that, that gave us some belief that we were onto something and, you know, we kept going from there. And where are things today in terms of growth and adoption? Are there any numbers that you can share? Yeah, today we work with thousands of businesses around the world. We have about uh, 2,500 paying businesses using the product and tens or maybe even hundreds at this point of thousands of monthly users who work at those businesses who touch the product. You know, we do several million dollars a year in, in ARR growing, you know, at a really healthy clip and feeling fortunate, especially these days to have sort of survived these last two, three years, you know, and gotten to the other side of, of COVID and then the sort of tech recession and yeah, you know, things seem to be kind of coming back to life. And we've been fortunate to be able to hold on and, and, you know, we're actually starting to see growth accelerate again now, which we're really excited about as, as businesses kind of get a little bit more comfortable spending and growing again. So yeah, businesses, you know, it's feeling less and less like a, you know, an idea that might work, might not, and more like a, you know, small to mid-sized business that's doing well and it's going to be around for a while. So do you feel like you have product market fit today? Yeah, definitely feel like we have product market fit. And, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily a, a binary thing. I think it's something that we're always going to need to be iterating on. And, you know, you could always add more to your product and the, the customer needs change all the time, especially these days with with all the stuff going on in AI. So it's not a one and done effort to get to product market fit, but I do think we have it. And we're fortunate too, to have it, I think a little bit more sharply than some of the, the other folks who are playing in the space. So the key now is, you know, holding on to that, maintaining that edge, that lead and, and capitalizing and trying to grow. I'm sure you interact with a lot of creatives. It sounds like what's their take on chat GPT and mid journey and just AI in general, like, are you having conversations with them about that or are they afraid of it? Are they embracing it? How would you like summarize those conversations? Yeah, I think it's a little early to tell. I definitely think there's a, a bit of apprehension. Everybody sort of thinks their job is safe until, you know, the right 
technical innovation comes along. And then I think this is the first time that we've seen one that actually could, you know, sort of threaten the role of like the creative or the content creator. But, you know, I personally think it's less about, you know, fearing for your job being replaced and more about trying to figure out how these new tools are going to help you do your job better. And so, you know, we're spending a lot of time talking to our customers about that. How can we leverage this technology to help you, you know, move 10 times faster at finding content, working with it, creating it, editing it. And, you know, so that's sort of the top priority on our upcoming product roadmap is thinking about how to, how to make use of this new technology quickly and, and keep serving our customers as, as best we can. But, but I don't know, it's still really early days. You know, I think we're not seeing like widespread adoption in, you know, the day-to-day work from most of our customers yet, but I think that that could change really quickly. Is it difficult to get them to create a line item for this? Because I'm, I'm guessing there is no line item right now, right? There would be like Dropbox or Drive would be probably outside of like creative. Like, so how are you approaching that? And what's that been like? For big businesses, for like larger players, the line item is typically a digital asset management system. So those, you know, a larger enterprise typically does have a solution in place. And these are tools that you might not be familiar with. They're not particularly sexy uh, software companies, but some of the kind of market incumbents are tools like Brand Folder or Binder or Canto or Widen. Those are a few of the, the, the players in the space. And so, you know, for larger businesses, there is an existing budget typically for a DAM, a digital asset manager. And that's that's usually where we compete and we, you know, play in the sort of RF, RFP process and all that. For smaller businesses that have never made a purchase like this, it can be a little trickier because we're often competing with or tying together or overlapping with multiple tools. You know, you've got your your cloud storage, but you also probably have a tool that you're using for some amount of kind of creative project management, you know, an Asana or a Trello or even a Notion. You might have a tool that you're using for creative reviews like Frame.io. So that can be a little trickier where we're sort of stealing pieces of budget from a few different existing tools. The good thing about us is that the product is so cheap to get started that we often don't have to make, you know, a huge overture or make this great business case, but rather we just let the product sort of do the talking and say, hey, you can get started for, you know, free if you want, or, you know, tens or hundreds of dollars a month, which is is typically pretty tolerable. And then if, if teams like it, then the product grows and they naturally wind up canceling some of those other tools. The marketing teams from these digital asset management platforms must be just thrilled with the rise of crypto and all the competition they now face with digital assets. I think that's, you know, probably they're getting search traffic, uh, they're, you know, everything now against digital assets, right? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't thought about that, but you're probably right. I imagine there's a lot of people mistakenly landing on, on dams when they're, they're looking for the latest blockchain innovation or something. <laughs> well, good news for you then, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> we'll take whatever SEO bump we can get. <laughs> When it comes to your category, then, how do you define it? I introduced you as a creative operations platform. I, yeah. I think I picked that somewhere from LinkedIn. Is that the category that you're creating? Yes. And, and I think that's the right phrase. We're, we've, you know, we've embarked on this category creation mission, which, you know, is, is totally a, a double-edged sword. You know, we wanted to distinguish ourselves from digital asset managers, which is sort of the legacy category. And, you know, we think we do a lot of what they do, but we also, we do something different, which is we're trying to be a place where people actually get work done. You know, they collaborate, they give feedback, they make changes. There's sort of a, an active nature to our tool that 
makes it different from sort of a static library where final assets go to live and and often die. You know, that's kind of the the knock on dams is that there are these static libraries. Technically, they're where people are supposed to go and, you know, find the company logo or the approved headshot. And more often than not, they just sort of get stale really quickly because the content creation, you know, all the, all the fresh stuff is actually being made somewhere else. And so, you know, we really like the term creative operations because it's less about the final destination and more about the journey, the process, the work of making content. And so that is the category that we, you know, we play in and, and, and we're doing, I think, a lot of the work of defining and sort of educating the, the industry on, which has been cool to see. I mean, uh, you know, two years ago, I don't know that that was a term that existed. And, you know, we started talking about it. A few others did. Now you're seeing it in people's job titles. You know, if you go on LinkedIn, you'll find, you know, creative operations directors and creative ops managers, and it's becoming a thing, which is you know, exciting. And we're trying to, you know, both create and ride that wave. We had Godard Abel on a few weeks ago. He's the founder of G2 and you know, obviously they create categories. That's their business. So we were asking him, you know, what's your, your number one advice for someone creating a category? And what he said was to go partner with your competitors, say, you know, go to the firms like G2 or Gartner and basically make the case for why the category needs to exist. Are you seeing competitors embrace this term as well? And how do you feel about competition in general? Like, do you want others to identify as a creative operations platform or do you want to keep this as, you know, your core category and just be the only company really focusing on this? Hmm. To the first question, we haven't really seen others emerge and sort of take this label on themselves. I don't know off the top of my head of another one of our competitors that thinks of themselves or talks as much as we do about creative ops. Most of them are still sort of speaking in the the language of of dams. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm torn. I, I, I you know, I got this an interesting point from G2 about the rising tide sort of lifts all ships. But uh yeah, it's not a strategy that we've tried. We haven't gone to our competition and said, hey, you know, if we can raise awareness about this concept, maybe we'll all do a little bit better. But yeah, so far I think we're one of the only ones out there that are that are doing it in earnest. What other marketing channels and tactics and strategies are you deploying to you know, create awareness for this problem and create awareness for the category? Our marketing strategy is pretty out there. You know, we have two primary sort of sources of customer acquisition. One of them is straightforward. You know, we do a decent amount of paid advertising with Google, you know, mostly with on search. Um, and that's pretty steady and, you know, a reliable source of leads. Um, and the other thing we do is really all organic. You know, we put a lot of content out into the world day to day, week to week that we're creating. And some of it is really on the nose, you know, and talking to creative directors and, you know, publishing some of their best practices and, you know, just raising awareness about the industry, about the function of creative ops and how people do this job and what it means. And some of it is just really wacky. You know, we do these fun campaigns that are funny, they're edgy, they're you know, loosely related to our business at best. And we do them to try to get the attention of people who are cool and creative on the internet. So, you know, it's more brand marketing, I guess you could say it than kind of performance or acquisition marketing, but that's worked really well. You know, just being a company that's creating great creative and putting it into the world, I think positions us in a way that makes those folks that we want to talk to pay attention and give us a look and, and want to come and hang out. And more often than not, over time that converts into checking out the product and, you know, eventually becoming a customer and an evangelist. 
That must be a difficult group to market to, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, if you have to try to put creative in front of creatives, I'm sure it's like the most judgmental group that you can possibly have. Totally, totally. Yeah, that's sort of the, you know, the, the stereotype anyway, that they're, um, you know, they can be pretty highbrow, some of them, and, you know, critical of content that they don't be, think meets the bar. But yeah, it's a challenge. But I, I think it's also fun. And, you know, we definitely take it. We try to approach it with a, you know, a tone of, I think, you know, lightness and even sort of poking fun at ourselves and poking fun at the industry and, you know, bringing just, you know, levity to the whole thing. And that's resonated really well. I think we've built a good brand and and thus like affinity with a lot of the folks that we want to be in conversation with. And now we're going to move into the last couple of questions here since we're getting close on time. So as I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised around or over 28 million in funding. What have you learned about fundraising so far throughout this journey? A lot of things, but I think some of them are somewhat cliche. I think we came up in the sort of B2B SaaS boom. You know, we, we founded the business in late 2017. And at that time, anybody who was playing in the, you know, collaboration or the any kind of kind of workplace productivity tool, they, they were just getting a lot of attention, a lot of buzz. And we, we definitely benefited from that. And uh, it can be really tempting to capitalize on that and raise as much money as you can and build a really big team. And, you know, then we were, you know, fortunate or unfortunate, we were then sort of victim of the the reverse where the economy came crashing back down and, and multiples compressed. And suddenly, you know, it wasn't about how much money you had raised anymore. It was about whether you had a business that made any real sense. And if you had people using it and paying for it and paying more for it this month than they did last month. And so I definitely feel like we've learned the downside uh, to, you know, raising too much too soon. It can be distracting and, and create this sort of false sense of maturity that is fragile, you know, and, and some businesses sort of escaped unscathed, you know, they grew up in that time and they sold, you know, or they, you know, they were able to sort of spend their way into market dominance before the business that really needed to make sense or had all of its ducks in a row. But we've definitely had to grapple the last two years with realizing, hey, you know, we've actually got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of product to build. We've got a lot of kind of need finding to do with our customers. We've got to, you know, develop this category. And I don't know, a lot, a lot of startups didn't make it out. And I think we almost didn't, but it definitely has taught me that fundraising can be a big vanity game. And it often in its most dangerous form can mask the fact that you haven't actually built a good business. You've just convinced investors to come along for the ride. So I think that's probably been my biggest lesson. Yeah. And I'm sure you're, you're not alone there. <laughs> As you mentioned, every tech founder, I think has had a very painful last well, like 12 to 18 months, but yeah. you mentioned it earlier in the interview, it, it feels better, right? Like the last month or two, it like, it just seems <laughs> like there's hope. I think like six months ago or seven months ago, it was like, it's pretty dark, a uh, dark world. Know, dark environment. Yeah. We've been waiting just, you know, eagerly and anxiously for some signs that things are recovering. And and they do seem to be doing that now, at least to a degree. And yeah, in the end, I think a part of me is sort of grateful for the the process. I think it did it did teach us a lot and it forced us to make some really tough decisions about the way that we run our business, about our team. You know, we're we're about half the size now that we were, you know, twelve or eighteen months ago, but we're, you know, we're getting more done. We're operating more efficiently and, and growing faster than than ever before. So ultimately I think uh, you know, a good process to have been forced to go through. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think for any company who can make it out of this, they are going to be better off in the end. I think it was just hard to do, right? Because what you were hearing in, what, like 
2020, 2021, it was just grow, 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 growth at right. all costs. Growth is all that matters. And then yep. all of a sudden it's survive. <laughs> that <laughs> matters. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Very difficult making that transition. Now let's do two more questions here. Uh, so let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? I think I would spend more time upfront, not just thinking about the product that we were going to build, but thinking about the go-to-market motion that we were going to pair with that product. And I think, especially in you know Silicon Valley, there's a strong tendency to build, to sort of build first and figure out the rest later. And you know what I've definitely learned these past couple of years is that building a great product is one thing, but if you don't know how you're going to get in front of your customers and convince them to use the product or, or how much they're willing to pay for it, or, you know, what that growth motion is going to look like, then you can waste a lot of time sort of chasing down the wrong thing or talking to the wrong person or, you know, building out the wrong marketing channel. And so I think, I think I'd be more thoughtful upfront about, you know, not just what is my product, what problem does it solve, but also what is that worth? to a potential customer, who is that customer? Where do they hang out? How do I get in front of them? And if, if you can do some of that thinking upfront the way that people often do, you know, product research and design thinking, I think you'd grow a lot more efficiently and save yourself, you know, probably a year or two of pain in the early days. Final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision for what you're building? My favorite analogy here is GitHub. I think that what GitHub has done for the development community is really incredible. And, you know, I think of them as like a developer operations platform. You know, they're actually not where you write code. You write code mostly on some local, you know, IDE, like VS code or Xcode or wherever you're, you're doing that work. But GitHub is the connective tissue that brings the development team together, the product managers who need to test a, a build, you know, the, the deployment, you know, rules and, and the automation that happens around the testing, everything from I've got this inkling of an idea for, you know, a new thing I might, I might build all the way to live production application out in the world. That's where we want to be for the creative process, the, this tissue that connects all of the different players whether that's a, you know, a solo freelancer who's just trying to, you know, publish some, some content onto the internet or a massive enterprise team with, you know, complex rules and processes and checks and balances along the way. So if we can do for the creative world, what GitHub did for the development one, then I think that would be a really successful outcome for us. And, you know, in the next three to five years. Amazing. I love the vision. All right. We're up on time here. So we'll have to wrap. If any founders are listening in and just want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? They can check us out on Twitter at AirHQ. I think that's probably the best place. And then we, we push, push a lot of stuff on LinkedIn as well. There's all, always interesting content that we're publishing there. So check us out, AirHQ on, on LinkedIn or on Twitter, and feel free to, to shoot me an email as well. Awesome. Tyler, thanks so much for taking the time. I really had a fun time in this conversation. Really enjoyed it and wish you best of luck. Thank you, Brett. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 